Well, good morning. I hope everyone is doing well. It is so good to see you all. I encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we will uh, begin in verse 18 in just a moment. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 in just a moment. Page 1708 in my Bible. I don't know about y'all. Last week, in verses 11 through 17, we see how Peter, as Peter continues to address suffering, persecuted Christians in Asia Minor, he tells them how they should live. This is how you are to, to live before the world. He has already told them that you are elect, you are chosen by God, you are sanctified and being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. You have been given great mercy. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope through his resurrection. You are given an inheritance which is being kept safe. Our faith, your faith, is being guarded. Perseverance and assurance of the saints was proclaimed to them that they were being prepared for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. They have received the joy of experiencing the fulfillment of all the desires of the prophets of the Old Testament. This is who you are, a ransom people, God's people, born again by, by the imperishable word of God that by grace was preached to you and you received it. You are living stones being built upon the cornerstone, which is Christ Jesus, together with other living stones into a spiritual house. You are a holy priesthood to serve the Lord. You were once in darkness, but by his grace, he has brought you into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people, you are his people. He was rejected, and so will you be rejected. But still we are called to live holy lives because he is holy. In verses 11 and 12, sojourners and exiles in this land, we are called to not live the same as the world who are slaves to the passions of their flesh. We are not enslaved. So we do not give in to those passions of the flesh and those temptations. We keep our hearts and our conduct honorable before unbelievers so that they will glorify God with us. In verses 13 through 17, Peter begins what is called the household codes, the code of conduct of Christians, and begins with our relationship to the government. How do we treat the government when they do good, or how do we treat government when they do bad? Peter says we are to be subject to them, subject, submit to them in all ways that we can, meaning unless they ask us to cross the line to fear them more than we fear God. This morning, we are going to get into the second household code, 
and that is for servants to be subject to their masters. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and the gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it and, and, and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in, him, found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in, the, in his body on the tree, and we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like a sheep, but now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Just like last week, and definitely for next week, these can be some hard passages to swallow. Not because they're hard to understand. There's, real, there's really no difficult in interpretation. There's no real difficulty in understanding its meaning and, and, and bring about the implied uh, implications and the applications. That's, that's, that's really the rub. That's the problem is what it actually means. It's pretty straightforward. Like last week, be subject to the governmental authorities. This is another tough one. Servants, meaning slaves, be subject to your masters. Now, just on face value, a statement such as that would get you kicked off Twitter and Facebook, or at least push you in Facebook jail, pretty quickly if you actually cared about those things. Talk about a phrase that would get you canceled. Now, there's a whole lot of discussion about context about this verse, and we're going to talk about to help us understand, but the point is clear. Be subject. Submit. This is the first part of our passage this morning, and it's about slaves submitting to their masters. But from verse 21 on, we see the means by which we submit. And the means by which we submit is put up against or, or, or put with the, this glorious, supreme example of the highest quality. This example is not a reprint. This example is not a copy of a copy. It's not the 10,000th copy of a Monet painting. It is the original painting from his own hand. It is the autograph. Our example that Peter uses is not 
of a reprint of David or Moses or Isaiah or Paul or even himself, but our example is Christ himself. Back in the the 90s, there was a, a Christian fad that spread throughout youth groups where every Christian had to wear a bracelet with WWJD on it. What would Jesus do? I decided to look up the history of it. Thank, thank you, Wikipedia, right? And it began in Holland, Michigan, at Calvary Reformed Church, and in a youth group, and the youth pastor made those up and gave them out and told everyone, what would Jesus do? And they all wore them, and then it spread, and then I'm sure they made a lot of money off of that. So I remember these. I had a few of these in different colors, and you could go to the good old family Christian bookstore. How many of y'all remember those, right? The family Christian bookstore. And you can go and buy these bracelets. They had them right up front. And you'd pick out what you want. And we wore them proudly because we wanted to display our commitment to Christ, but also as a reminder as a young man to not be dumb. Now, the bracelets started in the 90s, but it's a statement that was it's way older than that. In the 1800s, uh, there was a widely read book by a man named Charles Sheldon, and it was called, In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? Charles Spurgeon used that phrase, what would Jesus do, in 1891 in a sermon. In the same year, there was a, a hymn that was written, what would Jesus do? And I think, and this is what Charles Spurgeon referred to, was all the way back to Thomas Akempis, between 1418 and 1427, wrote his book, The Imitation of Christ, which basically means, what would Jesus do? Who would have thought that that saying on those little bracelets that some of us nerdy Christians used to wear went all the way back that far? What would Jesus do? But if you look at this passage this morning, you're not going to find bracelets that Christians should wear. You're not going to find WWJD or even the, the word, you won't find the words, what would Jesus do? But what we are going to find is what Jesus did. And that he is our supreme example. When I say supreme, I mean the tip, the top, the greatest example of submission. To endure suffering like Christ, to not sin, and to do good, and so to submit to your masters, but to imitate Christ as we follow in his footsteps. The first point that I want to give you this morning is straight out of the text, and that is to submit to your masters. And I know that sounds to our 21st century ears pretty harsh, and it and unfortunately, it sounds very much like Southern preachers in the 19th century who used texts like this to not only defend, but to justify the necessity of slavery in America. That is wrong. It's horrific. It's wicked. And it's a complete misuse of passages like this. But the imperative, however, is there. The imperative still is for slaves to submit to their 
masters, to servants be subject to your masters, verse 18, with all respect, not only doing good, and gent- but not to only the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. The word translates as servants literally means household servants or household slaves. These, what he is speaking to then, are mainly people who are slaves, people who are enslaved. There are different kinds of slaves in the first century Roman Empire. People became slaves through war. They were captured and subjected. I think a majority of them probably came through poverty, where the only way out was to sell yourself in the service and to then pay off your, your debts, or even by birth to parents who were already slaves. Slaves in the first century could also be very well educated. Slaves were known to be doctors and teachers and builders and even treasurers. But most of the slaves were household slaves and slaves that worked the fields. What we think of slavery is the the transatlantic slavery where Africans were captured and kidnapped by other Africans, by other African tribes, other of different religions, often it was from Islam, and they were sold to European slave traders to go to the Americas to work. Slavery that we, unfortunately, are familiar with is race-based, whereas first century slavery was pretty much anyone. Slaves in America were, most cases, were not allowed to own anything. They were not allowed to own property, everything that they had, everything they had in their, maybe their homes or their shacks or whatever it was, their clothes, that was all owned by their masters, including themselves. In the first century, slaves could own property. They could still follow their own traditions. Slaves in America, by and large, were unable to be freed or to free themselves. Of course, there were some cases where owners could free them and, and, and did, but they were not allowed to buy their freedom. First century slaves were allowed to buy their freedom and eventually gain freedom if they wanted to. There were many paths to freedom. Hard to obtain, but still paths of freedom. Now, I am not saying being a slave was any way easier in the first century. Life of a slave was always difficult. They were still property. They still had very little rights. They were called living and talking tools. They could be bought and sold. Masters were still wicked and harsh. They were separated from their families whenever. Slavery was rough and could have been far worse. Nothing could be far worse than being a slave, and it's far worse than anything that we could truly imagine. But to these, that Peter was addressing had a freedom as they were a part of the church. These verses are not an endorsement for slavery, even if he doesn't denounce it. The New Testament was not written by social revolutionaries, nor was their concern to completely change the culture. Their goal was to preach the gospel to individuals so that they would come to Christ by the repenting of their sin against their creator and trust in his 
saving work. Culture can and does change when enough individuals are transformed by Christ and society begins to be benefit greatly from the work of the Holy Spirit. It does become his better. History proves that. We have Ephesus. We see many cases of instances within America, within, within Europe, around the world. We see where culture gets better because of the preaching of the gospel. It's worth mentioning here that nowhere in the New Testament is slavery commended as a good social structure. Human beings in their sinfulness invented slavery, not God. But in Peter and in the rest of the New Testament, we have teaching in how Christians are to respond in godly ways to different forms of mistreatment, different forms of persecution and injustice and oppression. Yet with Peter, even addressing servants as slaves, hear me on this, even though he was addressing servants as slaves, he was elevating them. He was elevating them and treating them as people, people with dignity. He was treating them as brothers and sisters. He was treating them as equals, which is completely unheard of in any other part of society to treat and to talk to slaves and servants in such ways. This is where we need to understand something I think is really important. Because I don't think Peter is addressing just a small group of Christians, but I believe that this is, this is the position that most of the Christians in South or in, uh, in Asia Minor have found themselves. They were slaves, they were servants, they were not the masters. Which is why so many of them were, were suffering and facing persecution because they had nowhere to turn. Paul addresses servants and slaves in Ephesians 6. And he also addresses the masters in Ephesians 6. Peter does not address the master, masters. He addresses the slaves, because these people are not the upper echelon of society. So what he is addressing here is the real heart of their suffering, the real plight of a servant class was hard and many of them were experiencing the harsh treatment from unjust masters for the God, the work of the gospel in their life as Christians and it didn't matter how good they were or how respectful they were to their masters they were still serving dirtbags and as often often it was because of their Christian witness slaves and servants are to submit to their masters. Not only to the good ones, but also to the unjust. Be subject. Which means to fear. Be subject, which means to fear. Now that's interesting, because Peter has already told us to not fear man, but to fear God. So when Peter says that when we are submitting to our masters to fear, it's not man who we are fearing, it's God who we fear. The reason slaves are to submit to their masters is because of their relationship with God. We know that masters do not have absolute authority over their slaves. 
just like last week. We talked about how the, the government doesn't have absolute authority over us. If they commanded a slave to violate God's will for them to sin or be a part of the wicked act, then slaves are obligated to disobey, even if they suffer the consequences for such disobedience. But the command is still to obey both the good masters and the wicked masters. You couldn't just opt out because the master was unjust or wicked. Let me illustrate for you. So if a secretary should not refuse to type out an email for a boss who is just because he is a sleazebag. But they certainly should not type out an email if that email is filled with wickedness and evil. Do you understand and see the difference? In verse 19, he says, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Meaning, if you are respecting your masters, even though he is wicked and they treat the servant harshly, unjustly, because you are a Christian, then you, suffering in light of that, is a gracious thing. Verse 20, he totally writes off the idea that if you are a disobedient, that if you are rebellious, if you are stubborn, and then the master treats you with disrespect, and when you get the beating, don't claim grace if you endure. No, you deserve that punishment. But how in the world can he, in verse 19 and in verse 20, say that receiving harsh punishment from a wicked master for doing something good is a gracious thing? The gracious thing that he's speaking of here is a reward for your unjust suffering. You see, throughout Peter. He connects, and he's already done this for us, that he connects grace with salvation throughout. And the point of the letter is that you would endure, and that you would endure well in your, in your suffering by standing on the grace of God, 1 Peter 5.12. We stand on the grace of God. God rewards faithfulness. Not because faithfulness merits a reward and that God is obligated to give a reward, but because our Heavenly Father, in His grace, delights to be generous to those who live to glorify Him. Even in unjust suffering. Isn't the application, isn't this the application of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount? When he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! That's my inflection. And be glad for your reward. Grace is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There may be no reward for you being a good Christian who respects their boss, 
from anyone else. You may never receive a reward from your boss or from anyone else that you, you're, you may serve. Your boss may never care and may never give you any recognition, but there is a reward from the Lord for living in a way that is mindful of him and living for him. Brothers and sisters, thankfully, none of us are slaves. And even jokingly and tongue-in-cheek, we, we're not slaves at our jobs. We could never equate any of our situations to the same level as slaves. And you're intelligent enough for me not to have to tell you the differences. However, the same principle can and does apply to us. That first we must submit to our authorities and I think within this application, our employers appropriately. It's our job. The Lord has placed those bosses over us. We submit to them and yield to them rather than having them force their wills upon us. Second, we submit with respect. Understand that he has moved past mere obedience, but he has moved us into respecting them. Respect is still honoring the boss, even though we may disagree with them. Essentially, we give respect, we do good, and we work hard so that if we have to stand up for our Christian beliefs and for our consciences, then nothing immoral or disrespectful can be accused of us. And lastly, Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize of grace, the gracious reward that is due to us, that as we endure, and that if, if we may face harsh treatment, we know that the Lord will be glorified and that he will be rewarding us. Why should we submit to a boss that may be unjust and immoral, and may come at us for being a Christian? Why should we face suffering and endure? The beginning of verse 21 tells us. He says, for to this you have been called. For to this you have been called. Now, I want, to, want us to be careful not to overstate the meaning of this verse, but nor should we understate its meaning. To overstate it would be to, to live as a, uh, with this martyr complex and to just pretend that, uh, just to pretend to be a victim in, in, in everything, in every negative situation that comes our way. We just kind of pretend to be a victim and we just claim it to, to be because I'm a Christian, they're treating me this way. That's to overstate. To understate, however, is to deny the reality that Christians suffer. And therefore, we should just avoid suffering at all costs. Neither of those is what we see here. What we see is Christians who have been called to is a life of suffering that comes by unjust treatment. But we have also been called not just to endure suffering, but also to persevere through suffering. 
The calling is not just to face suffering and to suffer, but also to endure and to persevere through suffering. Jesus tells us that if he was treated the way that he was, that he was treated, then we shouldn't be, as his followers, as his disciples, should not be surprised in how they are going to treat us. Christians suffer. Granted, we do not suffer all the time. We don't all suffer in the, in the same ways. We still get to enjoy good things and good blessings. However, distinctly, Christian suffering for the faith should not surprise us when it comes. Honestly, I think over the last two years, we've been kind of taken off surprise, taken by surprise. This shouldn't be happening. Why is this happening to us? Or why is this happening to to them. Why are we seeing these, these things happening? Here's point two this morning. Yes, we submit to our masters even if we suffer unjustly for Christ. But second, we imitate Christ. We imitate Christ. Submit to your masters, but it's Christ who we imitate not them. I love the rest of the passage this morning because here we have such a very hard application for slaves that's hard to deal with. And he puts up right against this this supreme example of, of doing good and being obedient and respectful. He puts Christ up as their example to follow. And to walk in. And what kind of example did Jesus leave us? Verse 21. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. The reason why we suffer is because our king had suffered. But he didn't suffer for himself. Do you see that there? He didn't suffer for his own accord, for himself. He wasn't the sinful servant who deserved the beating from his master because he was disrespectful. He was the suffering servant who was beaten, who was humiliated, who was killed, not for himself, but for you. So that you could be forgiven. So that you could have new life. So that you could have a living hope. So that you would have a new birth. So that you could look forward to an inheritance that is imperishable and eternal. So that you would have a living hope. That you would have the Holy Spirit. So that you would be built up on the cornerstone as living stones. Do you hear the things that he's saying to slaves? Slaves! This is who you are in Christ. For you... And in his suffering, he has left us. He has left you the example. He has left you the, the prototype of humility and obedience, even in the midst of unjust suffering. 
Has anyone suffered more unjustly than Jesus Christ? I dare them to raise their hand. I dare them to stand up. The Son of God, the spotless Lamb, was slain for sin. Our sin, not His. This is all grace that we see here, right? For us, for us, for you. He's done this for you. And he is our example. Now, when we face unjust suffering, because in our calling to suffer, we endure by following his example. We follow in his footstep. And we imitate Christ when we are walking in them steps behind him. We are called to suffer, but to endure. And what kind of example was Jesus? What did Jesus do when he suffered the unjust, harsh treatment from wicked men? You know, one problem in our culture today is there is hardly quality people that are put up on pedestals today for us to look up to and to example. Yeah, we're, we're filled with celebrities and influencers and athletes and stars. But 99% of them are hardly anybody worth following. I mean, not even close. And that is a mass, that's a, such a big problem. Because so many people children included, want to follow in their footsteps. We throw the word around hero to everyone now. And if everyone's a hero, then no one's a hero. You see, we have truly been given an example worth following. Keep your eyes on him. And again, what kind of example was he? Verse 22, he never sinned. He never sinned. Think about that. During all the show trials and the secret trials of, of Jesus, while he was being mocked, he never sinned. Second, there was no deceit found in his mouth. Verse 22. He never tricked anyone. He never stretched the truth. He, he never uh, didn't tell the whole truth so that he could ease his pain and weasel out of suffering. Third, he never verbally lashed out or threatened those who were threatening him with such contempt. Verse 23. Instead, as Isaiah 53-7 tells us, he went to his death silent like a lamb being led to the slaughter. I think we all can understand the temptation here. Because there is not one of us who wants to be slandered. We don't want to be mistreated. We don't want to be lied against. We don't want to be accused of, doing, uh, of, of wrongdoing for no reason. We want to defend ourselves. And we're good Americans. It's our right to defend ourselves. But Jesus didn't have to defend himself. And he didn't threaten them back. 
Because he didn't have to. And why didn't Jesus have to threaten? Verse 23, because he trusted himself to him who judges justly. Because he trusted himself to, the, to him who judges just, justly. This is so important because we need to make this connection ourselves. Jesus trusted his father. And why did he trust his father? Because his father is God and sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over all things. He is sovereign over the wicked men who acted unjustly toward his son. He is sovereign over the wicked who act unjustly toward his people. You see, we love sovereign omnipotence. We love the sovereign power of God. But what about his sovereign omniscience when it comes to our suffering? Can we trust him as our father? That he is sovereign and that in his providence, he has put us in places under people, under bosses, governors, or emperors, or whoever that is. Can we trust him? Jesus did on the cross. How much more can we when we face the harsh treatment that we may face? Jesus trusted his father because he is sovereign, but he also trusted his father because of his righteous judgment. We are not the judges. We do not need to vindicate ourselves. Jesus was crucified by wicked men, but he trusted his father. He trusted his father that his father would vindicate him. And didn't his father vindicate him in the resurrection? He will vindicate us. He will make all things right. We trust that he will judge justly. So what an example we have in Christ. That even in the midst of the darkest and hardest times of our life, that we could see him as our supreme example and follow in his footsteps. This is serious faith-building passages right here. Because that's where faith is tested. And where faith is purified. And where faith is strengthened. If we can trust God that he will right all wrongs, then we can face unjust suffering without retaliation, sin, threats, and harsh language because we have no need to take justice in our own hands. We only need to trust God. Peter continues in verse 24 saying, He himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. For you were straying like a sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 
And here we have this testimony of the gospel. And that Jesus has dealt with our sin and in his suffering. Jesus as our example, but he is more than just our example. Big sorry to liberals who deny the gospel and Christ's substitutionary atonement and boil all everything down to just be like Jesus because that's not all. Jesus is our example because he is our suffering Savior who bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And on the cross, he was our substitute and he paid the price for our sin, which fully satisfied the wrath of God toward us. There was and is nothing else to give or nothing else that needs to be paid. So now we no longer are enslaved to sin like the unjust masters are. And we live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter loves Isaiah 53 and quotes it throughout. But he's trying to tell us that the wounds that, that you may suffer, the wounds that you may receive as being a slave for righteousness sake, those aren't the wounds that, that heal you. Those aren't the wounds that make you righteous before God. We are only righteous before God by the sufferings of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is how we are healed. And that is how we are forgiven of our sins. And all of us, we were once like sheep that have gone astray. But by His grace we have returned. But listen, we have not returned to an unjust master. We have not returned to a, a master who will hold things against you and beat you and keep you enslaved. But we have returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of our souls who laid down his life for his sheep. This absolutely means Jesus is caring and loving and his provision for his people, but also his authority and leadership over our lives. That we receive his care and authority through his word, his Holy Spirit, and through his people. And when you choose to follow Christ in your suffering, and listen, you are always choosing to live to righteousness. When you choose to follow Christ in suffering, then you're always choosing to live to righteousness, which is following in his footsteps as he has gone before us. The concept of unjust suffering is very often, is, is often very hard for us to understand, including me. It's hard to grasp it because, frankly, we have a lot of material prosperity. We have lots of comforts. We have cultural acceptance. And we have become, in many ways, inoculated to biblical view of suffering. We tend to think that if we live good lives, then God's going to bless us. He will keep us safe and 
He will keep us healthy. We often pray mostly for these things. We're thankful for Jesus' sacrifice, and we're even thankful for his, his example, but deep down in our hearts, we hope we never have to bear the cross that he has called us to carry. We hope that we never have to endure suffering. Brothers and sisters, beloved, suffering is part of living faithfully for all of us in one way or another. Only the Lord knows. Suffering isn't just for super-Christians and for martyrs and for missionaries. The suffering is for Christians. And as we live and grow in Christ in this ever-growing post-Christian world, our faith is not going to go unchallenged. But when we are, and when we suffer, we must know that he is our supreme example. We must follow him and imitate him. I told you all in the beginning about what would Jesus do. And I think it's clear here what Jesus did and what we should do. But the question is not, what would Jesus do then? But the question for us then is, will we follow? Will we follow? Will, will you follow? If we are going to endure suffering and injustice and harsh treatment because of the gospel, then we need to follow in his footsteps. We need to keep our eyes on him and imitate him image him and even if you fail then get back up and keep following remember this he bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you are healed you will never be wrong no matter how bad it gets and no matter how much evil you may face, you will never be wrong before the Lord if you're following in Christ's footsteps. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Use it to, in our hearts and our minds to conform us to Christ. In his name we pray.